Psalm 29, a psalm of David. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, everyone says, glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood and the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. All right. Exodus 9, 1 through 12. This is the plagues of livestock and boils. We've got two plagues we're going to do today. And uh, starting in Exodus chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still um, hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, and on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace, and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt, and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven, and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now today we're going to zip right through two more plagues upon Pharaoh and the land of Egypt. Well, we might not zip, but be it a zip or something a little bit less than that, one of the plagues we'll look at is the plague upon the livestock of Egypt. All of the livestock. And for me, it's a good time to consider the position of animals in relation to man. The Lord created the animals, and just like man, he is sovereign over them. But there are times when we don't act as if we believe it any more than we act as if we believe God has a right to our own souls. When someone close to us dies, we may find ourselves questioning God's goodness, struggling with our faith and unable to continue to praise him. But there is a fact that we need to consider. We're all going to die, and we have no control over that. None. It is inevitable. And the same is true with animals, including our precious pets. It hurts to lose a pet, and unfortunately, we may allow ourselves to get caught up in the same confused thinking about a pet as we do with a human. 
However, if we simply consider the world around us, we can hopefully evaluate these things differently. How many of us like to have a good burger or a steak? Right? I know I do. Yesterday I went to a restaurant and I had for the first time in my life a bison burger. And I would like to say that it was really good, but the onions were so thick on it that I never tasted it. So I wasted my time on that. But it's something that we enjoy is having that to eat. Anybody like a nice chicken parmesan? Of course. Can we honestly say that the Lord loves our favorite pet more or less than one of those animals that we're eating? But suppose you don't eat meat. Oh, I don't eat meat because I think that all animals, you know, deserve that care. Guess what? Tigers do. Do we kill the tigers to spare the deer? The world around us is filled with life, and all of that life belongs to the Lord. Some animals eat other animals. Some bugs need to be swatted, and sometimes entire herds of animals will die in a plague. We don't question God's goodness in these instances. We accept that the world around us works in a certain way. As we read today's account, think of the innumerable cute little goats and sheep that died. Think of the donkeys and the horses that were struck by the plague. Linda sent me a, a email with horses in it, these beautiful majestic horses a couple days ago. They were beautiful to see, but they were in the plague. The horses, their forefathers, died in this plague. God created and God is sovereign over his creation. Remember this when your favorite pet dies. Instead of being angry at God for taking the pet that was inevitably going to die anyway, remember to thank God for the pet that he allowed into your life for a special season and for the joy of your heart. Keep all things in perspective and know that God is good and he is good all the time. Our text verse today comes from Joel chapter 1. It's the 18th verse. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a season for everything under heaven, including a time to die. Until all things are made new, this is what we can expect to continue with regularity and often with great sorrow for any one of us. In our sorrow, let us remember that God remains good despite the painful tear that is in our heart. For those who belong to the Lord, let us just keep our eyes on the prize. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Yes, weeping may come for a night, but joy comes in the morning. As we see the destruction upon innumerable animals, and then the terrible plague of boils upon both man and beast, let us remember that such things are according to a much greater plan than we could ever conceive or imagine. This great plan centers on the work of the Lord for his people, the flock of his pasture. This is a truth which is found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of three thoughts today is let my people go. This is verses one through five. Verse one, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh. Towards the end of the previous chapter, the plague of flies ended because of the promise by Pharaoh to let the people go sacrifice to the Lord in the wilderness. The last words of the chapter revealed a broken promise, though. Here are those concluding words of chapter 8. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. 
It is with this thought in mind that we begin chapter 9 with the Lord once again instructing Moses to go in and speak to Pharaoh. Verse 1 going on and tell him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Kol Amar Yehovah, thus says Yehovah. <laughs> he once again declares his name. I am the existent one, full of power. I control the creation and I see the future before it comes to pass and I also see the heart of man. However, unlike the beginning of chapter 8, an additional distinction is made here. Not only is he Yehovah, but he is Elohe Ha-Ivrim, God of the Hebrews. This is the first time that this term has been spoken directly to Pharaoh. The term Hebrews was known to the Egyptians, but it was a name, like that of a clan. The meaning was disconnected from its use. Now, though, the name Hebrew is being reconnected to the use of that name. We may call someone Tom Carpenter, right? We think, oh, that's his name. Oh, there goes Tom Carpenter. However, a carpenter is something. If we reattach the use of the word to the name of the person, we can deduce that at some point in his history, one of his forefathers was probably a carpenter. If we pay attention to names, we can do this with many people that we know. There is Alex Goldsmith. His father worked in gold. There is Andy Miller. His father, or maybe his grandfather, worked with grains. There goes Mark Holliday. His family never did a thing. In the case of the title, Lord God of the Hebrews, the use is being reconnected to the name. In essence, I am Jehovah Elohe Ha-Ivrim, God of the Hebrews. And to understand this, you need to know what Hebrew means. It means to cross over. In his words, we can see what that means. I am the defender and the protector of those who have crossed over to me. They are my people, and I have made a distinction between them and you by placing my name upon them and separating them from myself. This is now the 17th time that the term Hebrew is mentioned in Scripture, and it's the 11th time in the book of Exodus. In all, it's only going to be used about 50 times in the Bible, and many of those will be speaking of the language and not necessarily the people. Each time this word Hebrew is used, it has significance. Its introduction here is to further distinguish the Lord's people from all others. As those who have crossed over to be his servants have not yet been set free, the demand of Exodus, which has become so common, is once again made. Verse 1 going on, let my people go that they may serve me. The Hebrew people are the Lord's people, not Pharaoh's people. And to the Lord their service is demanded. They have been in bondage to Pharaoh and he is expecting this to change. It isn't coincidence that the book of Hebrews follows directly after Paul's epistles. This pictures the transition from the church age back to a focus on the Hebrew people. Those who have long been in bondage to the power of sin and the devil are being asked to return to the Lord and understand that he has always been there for them. The demand upon the world of the Antichrist will be parallel to the demand upon Pharaoh in Exodus. If he continues to afflict them, consequences will be suffered, just as they are upon Egypt now. We will see this as we continue. Verse 2, for if you refuse to let them go and still hold them. These words are only a portion of a thought, and yet they are offset as a single verse. It is as if they are being highlighted with a pause 
off the lips of the Lord for Pharaoh's strained and expectant ears. They are spoken as a more definite assumption in view of past experience that Pharaoh may defiantly harden himself. In other words, they are showing that Pharaoh was heaping up guilt by his continued obstinate attitude towards the word of the Lord. The words if and still show with all the exactitude that the Bible can give that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart has and it continues to be the fault of Pharaoh alone. Jehovah has and he will continue to emphatically declare his will and yet Pharaoh has willfully chosen to reject that will by exercising his own. Matthew Henry gives a clear and concise evaluation of this attitude of Pharaoh and expands it to all people who strive against the word of the Lord. Here's what he says. Sinners have none to blame but themselves for that pride and ungodliness which abuse the bounty and the patience of God. For however the Lord hardens the heart of men, it is always as a punishment of former sins. Pharaoh has been sinful and his sin continues, and with his sin comes the judgment of the Lord. Verse 3, Behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep. A very severe pestilence. The fifth plague is announced. It will be against the beasts of the field some of which were deified by the Egyptians. If they were gods, they can now demonstrate their godness by resisting Jehovah. But if Jehovah is the one true God, then they will suffer by his hand. This then is attack on the false gods of Hathor, who is the goddess with a cow head, Apis, the bull god, which is a symbol of fertility. And these false gods will be proven exactly that. They'll be proven false. The hand of the Lord was promised way back in Exodus 6, verse 1, when it said this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of the country. The hand represents strength, power, and ability to perform. He formed these animals on the sixth day of creation and gave man dominion over all of them. However, he is sovereign over all things, even the life of the animals. This is reflected in the 50th Psalm beautifully. Here's what it says. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. Now working out his sovereign will, he calls down the sentence upon Pharaoh and his kingdom. The pestilence, or in Hebrew, the word is deber, will come upon a notable list of very valuable property. This word deber is usually used when speaking of pestilence among people, but it does cover animals as we see here in Exodus. And it isn't just a normal pestilence that occurred from time to time as the waters of the Nile rose and fell or as the seasons changed and brought in pests that carried disease. Instead, the Lord says that it will be kaved or very heavy upon the land. The imagery is that of the hand of the Lord coming down in a crushing blow against the animals which comprised much wealth in Egypt. It will be upon first the cattle of the field, a term used to describe any of the animals of the flock or the herd, some of which will be named specifically after this. It will also come upon the horses. Horses would have been used for the chariots of Egypt and possibly as beasts of burden in the field as well. Their main use at this time would have been for warfare. Having a chariot implies having horses for the chariot. And chariots were used for both royal transport and for military use. They were first mentioned in scripture all the way back at the time of Joseph, 
over 200 years earlier, and so they would probably have been very, very abundant in the land. The plague would also be on the donkeys. Again, donkeys would have been very common in Egypt. They were first mentioned in Genesis chapter 12 at the time when Abraham was in Egypt, noting that Abraham had many as a part of his great wealth. The plague would also be on the camels. In the same verse that donkeys were first mentioned for the very first time in scripture, which is Genesis 12 verse 16, camels were first noted as well. According to the liberal scholars at Cambridge, though, here's what they say. Camels were not used or bred in ancient Egypt, nor do they appear in any inscription or painting before the Greek period. And because of this, they see the inclusion of camels as an anachronism, unless it's a reference to camels owned by traders. However, the Bible itself is a witness to history, and therefore this statement is no anachronism. If Abraham had camels and other wealth when he was in Egypt, then it implies that there were camels in Egypt at that time, and that was over 400 years earlier. A little thought clarifies what liberal scholars cannot seem to grasp. Egypt was an integral part of the trade route between the Middle East and Africa. Just because they didn't deify camels doesn't mean that there weren't jillions of them hanging around the pyramids waiting for tourists to hop on and take a ride on. And in addition to these animals, oxen and sheep are also noted. The standard and common animals of the herd and the flock were to be affected by this heavy pestilence. Verse 4, And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. In the previous chapter, during the fourth plague, the Lord said, And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies will be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. The land of Goshen itself was set apart from the rest of Pharaoh's domain, but it was only noted that it is where Israel dwelt. Nothing was said one way or another concerning any Egyptians who also dwelt there, which later in the Exodus account we're going to see that they did. However, this plague adds in an entirely new dimension. Not only will the Lord make a distinction between where Israel dwelt and where the rest of Egypt dwelt, but he will now make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, much of which would have been actually co-located. The very livestock of one group would die right next to the livestock of another group. It would be a marvelous display of the Lord's grace upon Israel while at the same time judging Egypt. It is somewhat of a precursor, if you think about it, to the final plague on the firstborn in this respect. The word for and make a difference in this verse is the Hebrew word vehifla. It is the second of seven uses of the word pala in the Bible. We saw the first one last week. It means to set apart, but it also means wonderfully or wondrously. All right? And surely we can see the wondrous work of the Lord and his ability to judge even between the livestock of one group of people and another. Verse 4 continues. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. The Hebrew here is emphatic. It could more literally be rendered, there shall not die of all that is the children of Israel's a thing. The Lord gives life and the Lord controls death. It is a note of his absolute sovereignty in all things. Verse 5, then the Lord appointed a set time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Like the previous plague, it is announced by the Lord and it will come about. There will be no stretching forth of Aaron's rod or any other visible display to initiate this action. Rather, the word alone has spoken, and it will come about by that same word. 
There are a few reasons why this plague may have been announced in advance as it was, though. One is to show the Lord's absolute sovereignty over the plague and the timing of the plague. All right? Plagues of this type surely came from time to time, but this one is warned of in advance. The second is to show his control in advance over which animals would be affected. And third, it would be as a point of grace. In verse 3, it said that all of the cattle in the field would die. If they were brought in from the field, it is possible that some could be saved, although this wasn't stated either way. Every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills also belong to me. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field I will watch over tenderly. The life of all the creatures is in my hand. I created them and direct their life's span. But somehow man has failed to understand they are not gods, but a portion of my earthly plan. And as I wish, I give life and I take it away, directing all things so that man will hopefully see that as God to me alone, they should exalt and obey. And with their hearts, they should worship only me. Our second thought is the heart of Pharaoh, which is verses six and seven. Verse six, so the Lord did this thing on the next day and all the livestock of Egypt died, but the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. It is certain here, as it is made throughout scripture, that context needs to be considered when making absolute claims concerning the words all and every. In this verse, it says that all of the livestock of Egypt died. However, in the coming plagues, which are all during the same year, it is noted that they will come upon the animals of the Egyptians. Therefore, this verse does not mean all in the absolute sense, but in the general use of the word, which is found throughout scripture. The great number is being considered in opposition to the exclusive description given for the animals of the Israelites, which was not one. A literal translation from the Hebrew is lo met echad, not died one. This contradistinction is between the, the two, and it is all the more poignant when considering its ramifications concerning the superstitions of the Egyptians. Whether they actually deified these animals or whether they deified what the animals represented, the fact that their animals died and Israel, the Israelites didn't shows that Jehovah was sovereign over all. What seems to be the cruelest part of this then isn't the loss of money and the accumulated wealth but the knowledge that he was capable of this act at will. Thus, he was capable of it in the past, but he took no action against their misguided beliefs. Further, he's also capable of accomplishing the same feat at any time in the future if he so chooses. Their livelihood and the animals' lives were subject to his sovereign will. Thus, as Job says, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this thing in whose hand is the life of every living thing. That's from Job chapter 12, verse seven. Then Pharaoh sent and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. It's obvious if you read this first that Pharaoh saw the immense destruction of life around him and he thought it was simply not possible that none of Israel's animals would have shared in the same fate. In comparable terms for us, it would be like a nuclear bomb going off in a city which was full of Christians and Muslims. While all of the Muslims died, not one of the Christians did. How could that be possible? But in fact, not even one of their animals died. However, the perverse nature of Pharaoh is revealed once again in this remarkable plague as we see in the finishing of verse 7, which says, but the heart of Pharaoh became hard and he did not let the people go. Whatever this guy was thinking, it didn't include releasing captive Israel. 
Perhaps he figured they were better at tending to their own flocks than the Egyptians. I don't know. Maybe he figured he would simply take the animals of Israel for himself. Whatever he thought, he showed that he cared nothing for the animals that he'd lost. And neither did he care for his subject who fared very, very poorly under the heavy hand of the Lord. Instead, it says that the heart of Pharaoh became hard. But the Hebrew reads differently. It says his heart became chavad, heavy. It is a verb comparable to the adjective used to describe the hand of the Lord back up in verse 3, chaved. Despite the heavy hand of the Lord, the heart of Pharaoh only increased in heaviness. There's a play on words which is being made in the Hebrew, which we miss in the English translations here. The contrast here is given to show us once again the utterly obstinate nature of the man and how these judgments came upon him because of his own willful disregard of the Lord. A hard heart is a terrible thing to keep inside. It can only lead down a path of woe and sorrow. With every moment and with each step and stride, it will lead to a more painful tomorrow. If a plague on the livestock won't change the heart of Pharaoh, I will bring yet another plague upon the land, one that will lead him to more calamity and woe. This will continue until he learns to understand. Now I will afflict him in a most painful way. Boils will well up on him in all of Egypt, the land. The magicians will have had their final say. Another plague is ahead coming from my heavy hand. Our third thought is the plague of boils, which is verses 8 through 12. Verse 8, so the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take for yourselves handfuls of ashes. Now, what we're going to get here in these next five verses is an object lesson. I hope you understand what they're doing here because everything that is used plays on something that has happened to the Hebrews in the past. So pay attention if you can. Because no positive change arose from the previous plague in the heart of Pharaoh, a sixth plague is now directed by the Lord. It is an object lesson for Pharaoh to consider. Like the third plague, it comes without any notice, and it is inflicted directly on the people. To initiate this plague, they're told to take melo hapenechem, that which fills the hollow of the hand. In this action, they are directed to use something called piach. This is not ashes, rather it is soot. To figure out exactly what is occurring here, I did a study on this particular word, which is only used these two times in the entire Bible, and both of them are in this plague right here, in verses 8 and 10. This word piach comes from the word puach, which means to breathe or to blow. Thus, soot far better fits the imagery. This word puach is used in the negative sense of to utter lies. If one thinks of Pharaoh when reading the following Proverbs, you can see the similarity of what's going on here. A true witness delivers souls, but a deceitful witness speaks lies. Think of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has previously promised to let Israel go, but he has rather spoken lies. Likewise, the consequences of this are noted. It says, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies will perish. So you see the parallel with Pharaoh there. The soot which will blow throughout the land is set in contrast to the lies which have issued from Pharaoh's scoffing mouth as he sneered at the word of the Lord. And the object lesson continues. From a furnace. The word here for furnace is kibshan. It's used only four times in the Bible and it refers to something that is used for firing materials. The word comes from another word, kabash, which means to subdue or to bring into bondage. So think of the Hebrews, they're in bondage, right? It means to make serve by force if necessary. 
Therefore, there's this contrast being made between what Pharaoh has done to Israel and what will happen to him with the soot of the furnace. Goshen and much of Egypt had been converted into fields of brick making. That's been their job, right? And it was the Israelites who had been subjected to this forced labor of making these bricks. As Ellicott notes, here's what he says. When ashes from one of these kilns were made the germs of a disease that was a sore infliction, their own wrongdoing became to the Egyptians a whip wherewith God scourged them. He's taking the very thing that afflicted the Hebrews and he's now putting it on the Egyptians. It is then a just retribution for the ill treatment of Israel that they should receive this plague from the Hebrew hands of Moses and Aaron and from the kilns which had brought the Israelites so much suffering. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Lord will describe to the Israelites their ill treatment and his deliverance. Here's what the Lord says. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. Verse 8 goes on. And let Moses scatter it towards the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. Finally, the object lesson is revealed in what they do with these handfuls of soot from the furnaces. They are to scatter it towards the heavens. Just as fine dust permeates everything and everywhere, so this plague would permeate all of the land. And as the dust would settle upon the people from the heavens, it was indicative of God's judgment alighting upon the people from the heavens. As this was done in the sight of Pharaoh, it was a clear indication that the object lesson was intended for him to see the contrast between the ruthless, forced service of Israel and the soot, between the bondage of Israel and the furnace, and between the God of Israel and the kingdom of Pharaoh. Verse 9, and it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt. The word for dust here is the word abak. It indicates very small particles which carry on the wind. It is the noun form of the verb abak, which means to wrestle. Well, what does wrestling have to do with dust? The idea is that when men wrestle, dust gets kicked up from the ground. There is a divine wrestling match which is occurring as the dust is being thrown up into the skies of Egypt. The question for Pharaoh is, what will become the outcome of this wrestling match? It won't be pleasant. Verse 9 goes on, and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. This horrible plague is an attack on the Egyptian goddess Sekhmet, who is the goddess with power over diseases. It's also an attack against Sunu, who is the pestilence god, and Isis, the god of healing. Again, the Lord is demonstrating the futility of polytheism as he works out his plagues against these Egyptians. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, this affliction is actually going to be called the boils of Egypt. The Lord warned Israel there in Deuteronomy 28 that if they would not heed his commandments, that same affliction would come upon them that had once come upon Egypt. Here's that verse from Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab, and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. Because it is identified with Egypt, it is something that was considered unique to Egypt at that time. However, it would become a tool of the Lord for correction of Israel as well as for the punishment of Egypt. But the New Testament also gives us a similar description of this plague in the bold judgments coming upon the earth during the tribulation period. In the first of the bold judgments, we see this. So the first went and poured out his bowl on the earth and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. The Lord is 
consistent in his measures for judgment and for correction. And is, he is sovereign over time, he's sovereign over place, and he's sovereign over type concerning his choice of these measures. In this action against Pharaoh in Egypt, Adam Clark notes that there is a congruity between the crime and the punishment. The furnaces and the labor of which they oppressed the Hebrews now yielded the instruments of their punishment. For every particle of those ashes formed by unjust and oppressed labor seemed to be a boil or a blame on the tyrannical king and his cruel and hard-hearted people. So you see what's going on. There's this wrestling match going on between the two. You've oppressed my Hebrews. I'm now going to use the same things to oppress you. Verse 10, then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh and Moses scattered them toward heaven and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. Just as the Lord had spoken, they performed as commanded in the presence of Pharaoh. And just as the Lord had said, the boils that break out in sores came upon both man and beast. And so bad were these boils that they were completely debilitating to those afflicted by them. Verse 11, and the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. The magicians here, in Hebrew they're known as Hartumim. They're singled out in this verse, and it is the very last time that these Hartumim are going to be mentioned in the Exodus. Up until this point, they had accompanied Pharaoh, and they were there at his side with the expressed intent of standing against the signs and wonders of the Lord, which were accomplished through Moses. However, since the first plague, they could do nothing about matching the scope of the plague, nor could they do anything about ending them. By the third plague, they couldn't even replicate what had been done. Now, not only were they afflicted by the plague, but they can't even stand before Moses because of it. It is the last mention of them. They have formally conceded the match and have acknowledged their defeat before the Lord. There will be no more support from them or resistance offered by them. This is what Paul refers to in his second letter to Timothy, where he actually names these magicians. Here's what Paul says. Now as Janus and Jambres, those magicians, resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. The folly of the magicians became manifest to all, and they have become a sign to the people of the world who attempt to perform magical signs in opposition to the Lord. How unfortunate that so many have continued down this path even to this day. And even more, those who supposedly do these kind of things in the name of the Lord. In the end, their folly will be manifest to all. Verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not heed them. In Exodus 4 verse 21, the Lord said that he would harden Pharaoh's heart using the word chazak. Since then, four times it has been said that Pharaoh's heart was hardened using this particular word. But this is the first time it is ascribed directly to the Lord. But the Lord hardened. Up until this point, the hardening has been a volitional act of Pharaoh's will, even if it was passively accomplished by the Lord. The Lord gave signs, the Lord gave wonders, and these could have been responded to either favorably or negatively based on the predisposition of the individual. In the case of Pharaoh, he was predisposed to arrogance and obdurate behavior. Now, with there being no remedy to his arrogance, we see what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. Here are Paul's words from Romans 1.28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, 
God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. This verse then signals a judicial hardening of the heart because of his previous volitional acts of obstinacy. With no remedy, there is no point in wooing, only punishing. Pharaoh has gone from forsaking the right way to actually hating correction. There can only be one end for such a person, and it is explained in the book of Proverbs where it says this, Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way, and he who hates correction will die. Verse 12 finishes, Just as the Lord had spoken to Moses, Ka'asher deber Yehovah el Moshe, as spoke the Lord to Moses. The heart of Pharaoh was passively hardened by the Lord in the past. Now it is an active punishment for rejecting the right path. And the purpose behind this progressive action is exactly as stated at the beginning. Here's what he said back in Exodus chapter 7. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. The Lord was not honored among the Egyptians, but they would learn to know him. The children of Israel were bound by the Egyptians, but the Lord would bring them out from that bondage. And in his acts, Israel would learn that he was their God, the only God, and that he was faithful to his covenant promises. As we've seen time and time again already, there's a lot that we can learn about obstinate Pharaoh. He is willfully turned from the Lord, even after abundant evidences that his word is true and reliable. Of course, we all know many who have followed the same avenue, don't we? For those of us who are saved, we shake our head in disbelief. We pray for those like this that we love, and we may even secretly feel smug over those who we think deserve God's judgment. How stupid can they be? They'll get it in the end. But in reality, many of us are who are already saved by the blood of Jesus Christ are actually even in a more deplorable state. We're saved. We've acknowledged him. We've received him. And we've been granted the assurance of eternal life because of what he did. And yet we haven't placed him as the Lord of our lives. We ignore the commands and the exhortations of Paul when they don't fit our personal mores. We lie to ourselves that the Lord doesn't care. Is our disobedience worth the loss of eternal rewards? Is that the case? Are we merely satisfied with being on the heavenly highway and letting it go with that? Today, I would ask each person here who is called out to Jesus Christ to soberly consider their walk. Are you reading his word? Are you going to Bible studies? Are you walking in obedience and continuously redirecting yourself to the path which is right when you do stray? If not, today I challenge you to do these things. Make the savior of your soul the Lord of your life. You will fall. We all do. But better to attempt obedience than to ignore it. Today, ask Christ to strengthen you in who you are as a valued child of God through his gracious adoption. May it be so. Amen. Our closing verse today comes from Jeremiah chapter 6. It's the 10th verse. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Don't let it be said of you on the day when you stand before the Lord that you had no delight in his word. Cherish this word. Read it and study it and tell other people about it. 
Tell them that there is a God who is revealed in the pages of this Bible and that they can know him. Make sure you get that word out. Next week is Exodus 9, 13 through 35. Egypt will moan and Egypt will wail. Oh no, here comes the plague of hail. That'll be our 26th Exodus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can take those waters and he can part them and he can lead you through them on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today is called Plagues Upon Beast and Man. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, thus says the Lord, God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Listen to my word. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them and will not yield, behold, the hand of the Lord, even so, will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses and on the donkeys that you keep. And there's more, as I continue the sentence, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. You will see it's true, as I do now tell so nothing shall die of all as I am relaying that belongs to the children of Israel. Please understand. Then the Lord appointed a set time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, hooray, not one died. And so the Lord was glorified. Then Pharaoh sent and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go, just as the Lord had said. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourself handfuls of ashes from a furnace, and let Moses scatter it towards the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh, so he knows the source of the menace. And it will become fine dust, no doubt, in all of Egypt the land, and it will cause boils that break out in sores and man and beast from head to toe and hand to hand. Throughout all of Egypt, the land, let it be so as I command. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses scattered them toward heaven and everywhere it did go. Then they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast, a painful, disgusting plague, no doubt. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils of plague so grand. For the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians throughout the land. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and them he did not heed, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses, an obstinate fellow indeed. In due time the Lord will hand us over to our own wills, a hardening of the heart, unless we yield ourselves to him and make a fresh start. His offer is made, and heaven we may choose. We can accept this marvelous gift of grace, or we can turn away and so refuse, but that will lead to a different place. In the end, our destiny remains our choice. If we have heard of the gift of his son, Jesus, and so let us open our mouth and use our voice, receiving what he has offered to us. Let our hearts not be hard, but soft and open today. And in receiving Jesus, let us eternally say, great, glorious, and awesome God, hear our eternal praise. You are worthy of it, glorious and perfect in all your ways. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, it is tough to lose a favorite pet. It's something that many of us have suffered through and uh, uh, our hearts hurt because of that. And sometimes we think, why did God allow this to happen when we do know that you're sovereign and we just suffer in our own times of trial and affliction? 
How much worse is it when we lose somebody that we love in our own family or somebody that suffers affliction and we want to blame you and we want to cry out and say, why have you allowed this, God? When we know that's not right as well, you are sovereign and you have decided the moment we would be born. You have decided where we would live, the things we would do and when we would die. And we have no control over that. All we have is the time that we're living and help us to live that time rightly to give you the honor and the praise that you're due and not to suffer because of the plagues from your hand, because of our disobedience. Instead, we look forward to being taken out of here before that great time of tribulation on the earth comes. And certainly it must be coming soon. This world is so quickly departing from you and from your wondrous gift of Jesus. Help us to get that message out and to tell people before that time ends and the time of wrath comes. Lord, we thank you for these lessons that we learn in your word. We thank you for them. Help us to cherish them in our heart and to contemplate them throughout the day, throughout the week, and uh, just to hold them for our future reference as we think on the things that you have done for us and what could be and what won't be because of the glory of Jesus who has saved us from those things. We thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus and his salvation. We thank you for the hope of the rapture. We look forward to that day, Lord. May it be soon. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. We get the uh, instructions for the Lord's Supper directly from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, those are written from the hand of Paul. And I was talking uh, yesterday uh, with uh, Jim and I. We were down in the projects and uh, one of the ladies was talking about the Lord's Supper and they had tried changing the day a few times at their church to get more people involved. Or, And she said... Um, uh, in some ways, it kind of gets routine, and uh, it just becomes, you know, something you're doing. And uh, Jim noted that with the Catholic Mass, where there's really no substance behind the words. And I would hope that never happens here, is that the Lord's Supper is something that we take because we understand its significance. It's signifying, as Paul says, we proclaim his death until he comes again. And that's what we're doing, is we're proclaiming the fact that this person, this God-man, died on a cross, a painful cross, so that we could be reconciled to God through his shed blood. And that death is the only thing that makes that possible. And that's why we do this week after week, is because we want to honor what he has done. So let this never become something old or routine, but something which stirs you each and every week. Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam HaMotzi Lechem Min HaAretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. 
But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Glory be the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, it's so good to see how you can heal us. And walking up here with just a cane today, it is really wonderful to see how we can, we can be completely taken apart in pieces and be put back together. And you've given us wisdom, you've given us ability. Pray for Ann and Dad as they travel up to Massachusetts for the summer. Pray for the bridges as they travel, for Tom Penson and for Janice Alley, that you would remember them in their affliction and their families as well. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to meet here. We pray for those that aren't here today, and we'd ask that you would bless them. And especially today, we pray that you would bless the mothers, each one of them, with joy in their heart at their accomplishment of raising up their children. We thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us, how great and glorious you are. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.